And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devil, Professor of Catholic Studies and Editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And I'm here with my co-host, Liz Kelly, award-winning author and speaker, and importantly for our purposes, the managing editor of Logos. Liz, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks, Dave. How are you? Fine, fine, fine. We have a wonderful guest today, Christopher Graney, who has written several times in Logos. And we're going to be speaking about one of his articles from a few years ago called Omission and Invention, the Problematic Nature of Galileo's Proposed Proofs for Earth's Motion. Uh, Christopher is a longtime college professor who's now working uh, much more in depth with the Vatican Observatory. Christopher, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Fantastic. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about your own life uh, as a scientist and your faith, how you see faith and science working together? Uh, you, I, I know you, you taught college for a long time. You've been working with the Vatican. Uh, how, is, how did you get into all of these things, and how do you see those connections? I have been an astronomer my entire life. I cannot remember not being interested in astronomy. I blame that on my mother, who used to <laughs> do things like wake me up in the middle of the night to see an eclipse of the moon, or she would point out we lived uh, on a, in a moderate-sized town in western Kentucky where the western horizon was a very flat, open cornfield, and she would point out, like, Notice, you know, hey, do you see that where the sun's setting now? Look back, you know, here in the summer. Now, look at, you remember back in the winter, it was setting way over there, you know, and things like I that. I love her. So, yeah. I <laughs> How have, wonderful. I have, I have always, so I cannot remember uh, not being interested in astronomy. Um, I, I, I went to college at the University of Dayton. Um, I, I majored in physics. Uh, so I've sort of bounced between physics and astronomy in my career. I majored in physics. I went to uh, University of Virginia for graduate school where I then was studying astronomy. And I got hired at uh, Jefferson Community and Technical College. I, I, I had been planning on getting a, a PhD in astronomy, but I, I found that they, they, they gave me a class to teach, and uh, I, I really liked doing it. And uh, it was the summer, and they gave me an introductory astronomy class. And uh, I said to my wife, uh, you know, I, I think if I could get a job doing this, I'd take it. And so I, fortunately, it was a pretty good time for, to be applying for community college jobs. And uh, I got the job at uh, Jefferson Community and Technical College in Louisville. It was Jefferson Community College then. It was a branch campus of the University of Kentucky. Mm. And... Um, I've worked there for 30 years, and I credit that with my involvement with the Vatican Observatory. And you think, say, why is that? And it's because my students kept asking questions. Um, uh, community college students are very good 
at asking questions of the sort that you, you, you don't necessarily expect. And they will not, they've not usually been through the, the, the proper, so to speak, systems of education. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily, um, you know, think that there's things that they should and shouldn't ask. And so I got a lot of why questions. Why do you think this or why do we think that? Um, they, they didn't accept the standard explanations. I would look things up. And between their questions and the fact that talking to students who do not have a lot of science education, you're talking to smart people who don't know a lot about modern science, it turns out that the way they think is very similar to the way people like at the early days of modern science thought. They, you know, Galileo, for example, is a smart person who didn't know a lot about Newtonian physics because it hadn't been invented yet. And so that gave me certain insights. I began working on history of astronomy and I seem to have some skill at it, which I credit to my students. Got a lot of stuff published through this. Since my work was on a lot of Jesuit astronomers and things like that, I ended up making contact with the Vatican Observatory because they have a lot of Jesuit astronomers. And that, you know, loosely brings us to to where I am today. I retired from Jefferson uh, last year, and now I'm working for the for the VO, and I'm also an adjunct scholar, so I'm a member of the staff of, of the observatory as well. And what does your work there entail? So um, I do a number of things. Um, I began uh, by uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno. I had met through my work in a couple of different ways. We met in person a couple of times. He came to Louisville to give a, a talk. And after about a month or two after the talk, he asked me if I would start writing for the um, observatory's blog called Sacred Space Astronomy, the Catholic Astronomer. Um, then they created a faith and science, uh, web resource hmm. and, uh, I've been editing that and I've now, I've now made an adjunct scholar, which means I have, I, you know, I am a member of the observatory. You know, if I want to go demand time on the telescope, you know, I can along with the other. Huh. Uh, Will you take there. me with you when you do that? <laughs> Well, if you have, you know, even even I may have access, but I still am in competition with the others there. You know, I have to have uh, a good idea. So, if you have a good observing proposal, the answer is yes. Oh, great! But we have to have a we have to have a good observing proposal. Oh, I have to you like know. discover a new planet or something really interesting uh, like that. Oh. Yeah, it doesn't have to. You know, maybe even just some very interesting observations of an existing planet. Yeah. If you have some good okay. ideas, you know. Okay. But yeah, um, so. Uh, as time has gone by, I've 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 started to do some public relations work. The uh, longtime director of the observatory, Father George Coyne, passed away in 2020, and I'm mm. writing a uh, commemorative book on his writings and uh, that huh. the observatory is putting out. So it's a variety of different things. It's very interesting. It's very different from the college world. Very and uh, it's very very fun. And so. are you really primarily addressing questions related to faith that come in to the observatory? Or uh, I assume because it's the Vatican Observatory that there are different questions posed to them than there might be to some just, uh, you know, university observatory somewhere else. Or is that true? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make... Uh the VO happy by mentioning that you, people should can check out, uh, you want to learn more about the observatory, we have a website, vaticanobservatory.org. Great. And um, you, you could see a lot about what goes on there. But the Vatican Observatory's primary business is doing science. 
Mm. Okay, so just like every other observatory. Um, and so the addressing questions of faith and science will come up in public talks and things like that. Mm. Um, but if you look at, for example, I've been working on Father Coyne's uh, work. And the vast majority of his work, his career spanned, he got his, he, he wrote his first paper that was published in the Astronomical Journal in 1963. He passed away in, in 2020. The overwhelming amount of his work consists of papers published in the Astronomical Journal, the Astrophysical Journal, you know, full of data and, you know, photos and stuff that's not really that readable by the average person. Um, the work of the, uh, you know, that what the astronomers at the Vatican Observatory do, they're Jesuits for the most part, except for those, those of us who are adjuncts and don't live on site are not Jesuits. And there, I think there's one diocesan priest in there as well, but they're all priests um, or brothers of the Jesuit order. And they're doing astronomy, working on meteorites, you know, uh, studying, uh, looking for near-Earth objects, those, you know, small asteroids that have been missed and passed close to Earth. You hear about them every once in a while that somebody says, oh, uh, you know, this rock passed, you know, within so many million miles of Earth. Um, you know, spectroscopy, uh, <laughs> you know, it, so like things like faith and science questions that are, are addressed when people ask them. It's maybe somebody will write a book or things like that, but but science is the is the first thing. So this article that we that you did for us on uh, Galileo's emissions and event inventions did this come yeah. out of uh, questions that were asked at, for your work for the Vatican Observatory, or were these things that your students had been asking about, or how how did you come to to write on uh, the the true history of Galileo? So of course the. Galileo would come up in my with my students. Um, in fact, a large part of my my interest in the history of astronomy came from a variety of student questions, but one in particular who who asked, "How could anybody?" He he said something to the effect of, "How could anybody think that the sky is pink?" Because that's what it says in the Bible when you can look for yourself and see that the sky is blue. He said, how would anybody ever, ever do that kind of a thing? Because he was thinking, you know, that, that people were ignoring what's seen through the telescope and, in exchange for what's written in the Bible. And I was like, no, you know, I can't. I'm not sure I can answer that question. And uh, so that led to like, well, why did people think what they did? And over time, I've learned that, in fact, there was no thought like that from, you know, there's nobody who was looking up at the sky and saying, I believe it's pink because that's what the Bible says, you know, even though I can see it's blue. People did not ignore their, did not ignore observations. Um, but you keep reading that they do in books. Yeah. And what particularly got me going on this was finding in a, a, a variety of books, I kept finding this statement that Galileo had proven that the Earth goes around the sun. And this was in things ranging from the New York Times to the back of a modern translation of Galileo's dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, Ptolemaic and Copernican, to a travel book that, you know, was like <laughs> sight to see. children's book? Yeah. A children's book. Mm -hmm. um, yes. You know, and... And, and finding just wildly wrong information. 
in in all these different sources. And I don't know how you address this because it's so common to find out that Galileo proved that the Earth went around the sun that everyone, you know, just unless someone is like a specialist in the history of science, they're simply going to believe that Galileo proved that the Earth went around the sun and that opposition to this was because of what was in the Bible. And of course, that's what my student long ago had asked, essentially that very question. How could somebody believe the Bible over what they can see with their own eyes? Well, in fact, they never, nobody did that. Galileo never proved that the Earth went around the sun. And in fact, the various things he came up with to, to, as evidence for Earth's motion, motion all had major scientific problems with them. So this is probably blowing some of our listeners' minds because I think most people <laughs> do think that. Um, so if he didn't prove it, uh, what, what, did he, what did he actually do? Did he, did he present more evidence for it, or was he even the first one to suggest this? Yeah. Well, that, you know, the, that's a tough question. Um, what did he do? He built a very good telescope. He is not the first person. He did not invent the telescope. Um, he's not the first person to use a telescope, To use, not the first person to look at up in the sky with a telescope. There's other people who beat him to it by a little bit. But he built a very good telescope. He saw a lot of things. He saw, for example, that Jupiter had moons going around it, um, that Venus had phases. Uh, Jupiter's moons going around it showed that things could go around Jupiter. Um, the phases of Venus showed that it went around the sun. Um, he saw that the moon had mountains and craters. Uh, the sun had spots. Nevertheless, these things did not show that the Earth go went around the sun. They showed that, that Jupiter had moons, that Venus had phases and went around the sun, and so on and so forth. There were other theories at the time over how the universe worked that also had, for example, Venus going around the sun. But the sun was going around the Earth, so his, his discoveries were compatible with those, those ideas. The Tycho Brahe is the most prominent person who had – he liked aspects of Copernicus's theory, but he, for scientific reasons as well as also from some certain scriptural sensibilities, he, he, he believed the Earth was at rest and mostly for scientific reasons. And so he had the sun going around the Earth but planets going around the sun. Mm -hmm. I had always thought that the moons going around the Jupiter, I had learned in school that the moons going around Jupiter were like real evidence for the Copernican system. Until I, and, and I was shocked when I was, I was translating the writings of some anti-Copernican astronomers. And this one person says, oh, look at the moons of Jupiter. Here is strong evidence for the old system of Ptolemy. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, why? Well, his argument was this. Look, Ptolemy always said that the, the motions of the planets that we see in the sky, the planets, the sun and the moon travel through the stars in a fairly regular fashion, but the planets will move through the constellation of the zodiac and then they back up and then they go forward. They retrograde is the word. They do these strange loops. And Ptolemy had created this system with the epicycle system of one circle turning on another to explain this. And this person, this is uh, Johann Georg Locher and his mentor, Christoph Scheiner, a, 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 a Jesuit. Um, what they said is, 
Ptolemy had said that there's these epicycles, but that was just a presumption to explain what we see. Now we look at Jupiter and we see one object on a circle that going around another object, which is itself moving. And now we actually see circles on circles <laughs> through the, with the telescope. This shows that Ptolemy was on, you know, had something going on. Mm-hmm. And by that just, my teeth about fell out of my mouth, you know, because I had always heard that the moons of Jupiter were, you know, evidence for the Copernican system. And here is somebody, a scientist, saying, oh, this is evidence for the Ptolemaic system. You know, um, it is very, very, very interesting to me. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits, Catholic intellectual exploration, or career preparation. Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Galileo, you outlined a number of things that he did discover and good things that he did, but he also had what you call omissions and inventions. He, uh, he seemingly uh, was not always honest uh, as a scientist. Um, could you maybe talk about those, those two, uh, that omission and that invention, and, and maybe how are we to view Galileo? Is, is he a hero, or is he uh, somebody that we can still learn from? Was he a good guy? So, so I don't want to make a judgment on whether he was a good guy or not. Um, <laughs> you know, he's he's a person. He's yeah. a scientist, and um, I think that he, you know, he was ardently pushing for his ideas. Um, it is possible that he had in his mind solutions to some of these problems that he just never articulated. Sure. Um, so I don't want to say, you know, like too much, you know, to make too, many, too much of a statement on him and his, how his mind was working. Yeah. But the fact is, is that it's very simple, it's a very simple uh, illustration of the kind of thing that he did, is he came up with an example. He thought that the ocean tides were evidence of, the, of Earth moving. And his logic was, as Earth spun and went around the sun, it, the speed of the surface of the Earth changed. So the Earth was actually moving through space fastest on the surface, moving fastest on the nighttime side, slowest on the daytime side, and that speeding up and slowing down of the Earth's surface caused the tides, the (laughs) the oceans to slosh back and forth in their basins, like a glass of water in a car when you're hitting the gas and the brakes. Yeah. Now, if you read a standard book, you'll you know about this. You'll say, well, this was not a good idea. It didn't work. So on and so forth. But what you don't find out is that Galileo proposed this idea in two different places. And in one, he said, you know, there's a problem with this once a day speeding up and slowing down. And that is that you get a a high tide twice a day, a low tide twice a day. And his argument was, well, that's just because it's reflecting this wave of water sloshing back and forth is reflecting off the two ends of the Mediterranean Ocean, Mediterranean Sea. And in his first presentation of this idea, he says, but if you go to Portugal, to the Atlantic Ocean, 
this doesn't happen. The tides only occur once a day. Well, we know that he was informed otherwise of this because <laughs> there's a, a letter or somebody who said, yeah, I told Galileo that this, this idea was screwed up. And yet when he wrote this same argument, he used the same argument, he wrote it in his dialogue. He went through the same thing. He said all the stuff, stuff, same stuff, and he just left out the part about, about Portugal and the Atlantic Ocean. You know, in other words, he had been presented with contrary evidence. If his theory was right, then the Atlantic tides would have to be different than the Mediterranean tides, and they weren't. And he so did he incorporate that or make adjustment? No, he left it out. You know, <laughs> now, you know, without making any personal judgments on him, if that was going to a scientific review process now, that would get that would be a major screw up and and you know his paper would not get published sure. and he would get chastised by the referees for this um and he did a number of things like that um we can't discuss them all, there was enough time yeah. to run through all of them right. but but he did do, he did those sorts of things and uh what was going through his head it's hard to say but what is clear is these things that he came up with to show evidence for earth's motion did not show evidence for it. They all had problems like that. That's really interesting because um, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how science and theology are uh, interested in clarity and uh, the truth of things. <laughs> and, and it's far more similar than it is dissimilar. And yet we tend to sort of pull faith and reason or faith and science uh, as two completely separate trajectories when really, in fact, they're, they're really interested in a lot of the same things. And, and maybe they're both um, susceptible to the same temptations <laughs> of, you know, I want my own way. <laughs> I, I want my theory to be the right one. Uh, you know, we could certainly argue that that same sort of temptation. If Galileo fell to fell prey to something like that, there are certainly uh, theologians who do the same thing. But how interesting that the Vatican even has an observatory and is so interested in uh, embracing uh, scientific realities that it should even have its own observatory. I just find that very interesting, and that. Uh, there are so many priests whose minds and vocations have been directed towards this, I think is just further evidence of, you know, how the church is really in support of scientific exploration. At one time, the, uh, the very significant number of the astronomical observatories in the world were, were run by the Catholic Church, mm. um, in one way or another, through, you know, the, the um, observatory at Georgetown University or the observatory at, you know, in, in the Philippines or the observatory, you know, the, uh, you know, church run observatories were uh, a substantial portion of the observatories in the world. Hmm. Um, what do you say about uh, science and theology? I think is, is, is quite correct. You know, but what the idea of wanting to get to what is true Mm-hmm. And uh, you know is is present in both, and I and I think that they both, uh, you know, uh, share that. But my my background is in science. I don't have a huge background in theology, so I, I you know I can't speak to 
theological questions a lot. But you know, from what I from what I have found out is, is you know, over time is what I have learned about theology. I've learned that you know it, that it can be you know a very challenging and complicated subject, and you know, much like science, it, it, things can can get tricky. Um, this, some of the things with Galileo's efforts, he, he did these observations of stars, and there was this problem with the sizes of the stars, which is really hard to, for a lot of people to, to grasp because his observations – and it turns out that there's all these astronomers who made similar observations that were forcing them to make conclusions about the stars that were wrong. We know they're wrong today. They didn't know they were wrong then. And the the root of the problem was there's something about the, how telescopes work that they did not understand, you know. So they could be think they could be doing things that made complete sense, but because they were lacking a piece of information, things were going off the rails. And I think that you can imagine, you know, I, I'm not an expert in theology, but I imagine if you, know, if you leave something out of this mm-hmm. puzzle, right. your answer could get to be pretty screwed up. Sure, you know? sure. So what yeah. was so what was what you know this is again part of the mythology of Galileo what was he really tried for and what was he convicted of by by the inquisition He was tried for you know he he was convicted of 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 disregarding the orders given to him to stop teaching the Copernican and holding the Copernican theory Yeah all right um and uh, you know so if you read I'd have to go look up what exactly what the terms of his sentence sentence were you know, but what it wasn't is, you know, he wasn't tried for discovering that Jupiter has moons or that (laughs) Venus has phases, you know, Um, when, for example, uh, his trouble sort of got started when his friend went to have dinner with uh, or lunch with Christina of Lorraine, the mother of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. And and the Grand Duke and his wife were there, and Christina starts grilling Castelli about the Copernican system, and Christina is clearly concerned that the Copernican system, you know, that this contradicts Scripture. But Christina, she has a, a wingman there with her, another professor who's advising her, and they don't argue. They're not. They acknowledge all Galileo's discoveries as true. They had all been confirmed by Jesuit astronomers in 1611, and this, this lunch was in 1613. And nobody. They were not arguing about what was visible in the telescope. They were arguing over the interpretation mm-hmm. of those observations. There were other systems, namely the Tycho Brahe system, that would that would fit the data. And so Galileo is, you know, that's from the get-go. And from that, his le- a letter he writes to Castelli ends up getting sent to the Inquisition. And that's what starts the whole ball rolling, is that is Christina of Lorraine and, and his friend Castelli get, get the whole thing going. And, but there is not a thing where somebody's saying, we don't believe that what you see through the telescope is real, or, right. you know, yes. we reject what you see through the telescope. That's not what he's convicted. He's convicted for you know, picking off the Pope and, and, and you yeah. know, saying the wrong stuff and, and supporting, you know, not doing what people told him to do. But it's, you know, but these are all sort of political personality type things right. that, that are yeah, not a matter of what's being observed and, and, you know, is this real and so on and so forth. Everyone agreed with what was seen through the telescope. I mean, maybe for a few months when the telescope was really new, people would say, well, I don't believe that thing. But once, once you've got some decent telescopes out and spread around, everybody could, you know, what we do in science, you know, we call it, you know, um, reproducibility. 
I see these going around Jupiter. Do you? Yeah, I'll just go yourself. What do you see? Yeah, I see them going around Jupiter too. So, you know, very quickly, everyone agreed that, yes, what Galileo discovered with the telescope is real. Was it, uh, was it a matter of his sort of uh, maybe going, going, going out of his lane and making theological conclusions or sort of suggestions about theology? Um, you know, I don't. It, it's, you know, my, my area of expertise in this stuff is yeah. science and the history. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that this is, this is just a case of adults behaving badly, uh, in my <laughs> <Right>. view. <laughs> yeah. Um, the question I have, I bring up, so I got an article coming out in a magazine uh, later this year, and it's about Giordano Bruno, um, because it turns out that these same problems undermine, they undermine the entire idea that, that the universe that they were discovering back then is the same universe that we see now. These problems with the stars create all kinds of difficulties. And, for example, the, the scientist Johannes Kepler argued very strongly that the sun is the only sun in the universe. Okay, there is one sun, our sun. The stars are not suns. They're something else. Okay, which that, and he used science to support that view. And Bruno, of course, who, Bruno is the one who said that there's, the stars are all other suns. And it sounds very good now because we know that that's kind of true. You know, but... We, we have these views about why people were condemned or why they were rejected. And what I would say is, if you took away the science, then what you get in people like Bruno or Galileo is you get another case of adults behaving badly and someone getting treated poorly by the church. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who get treated poorly by the church. Right. I mean, the church is a human institution, and there's a uh, brother guy, the director uh, we had an article in American Magazine. He brought up, you know, that, that at the same time, roughly, that Galileo is is uh, being condemned, people are being put into slavery under under under, under Jesuits in yeah. the United States. You know, but Galileo is the, is is this very famous name, even though compared to being enslaved, what happened to Galileo is really not you know not that. It's not the worst example of being treated poorly. The thing that makes the Galileo story unique is this idea that somehow it was about science. It was about people, you know, refusing to look through the telescope and refusing to see what Galileo saw, and you know, being condemned because the Bible said that the sky is pink, even though you could look up and see it that it's blue. And so you take away when you look at what the science really is, then this just becomes a story of people you know, doing the dumb things that people do. You know? <laughs> we never see that anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. What are some resources people could look to to find out more about the true history of Galileo and the church's work in science? What do you recommend to people? So this is a, a difficult challenge for me to do this because there are so many books and resources that say the wrong thing. Yeah. About Galileo. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, I'm not going to name names and run things <laughs> up, but I could pop off about three books that have been published in the past year or two that go through that standard Galileo myth. I can think of a book written for Catholics as an educational book that's got, got history of science wrong. Yeah. Um, the one book that I like that I've read recently is the um, it's called Galileo in Rome: The Rise and Fall of a Troublesome Genius. Um, that is by uh, William Shea, I believe, and that that sort of goes through 
kind of the adults behaving badly aspect of of uh, you know of, of the Galileo story. So that that one that one comes to mind. Brother Guy and I wrote an article for that was published in America Magazine last October that sort of discusses some of the difficulties of um, you know the the Galileo story. I can recommend the article, you know, the articles that in, that I wrote that are in Logos. Yeah. I, I tried to write those for stuff I write for Logos, you know, for a little bit broader audience than some of the more technical history of uh, of astronomy things. You know, it's a challenge because there's so many people who think that you know this is the Galileo story, um, and so they'll simply drop reference to it without thought. And even you know people from some of the finest universities publishing under the Best presses, you you're going to get this myth. So it, it is a it's difficult to track down, you know, a solid story of Galileo. And I would say that if you're reading something that's talking about people not looking to, you know, being refusing to accept what was in the telescope or things like that, you know, just rejecting science and all that jazz, you're yeah. probably not looking at a source that's got it right. Well, that's a great place to end. We've been very grateful to have Chris Graney here on the show, and we've been grateful to have his articles. I'm Dave Devil, and I'm here with Liz Kelly, and this has been another great episode of Deep Down Things. We hope that you will continue to listen to us, recommend us to others, and also check out our site, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings. Thank you, Chris. All right, glad to be able to do it. And thank you again, Liz. Good to be here. God bless you all. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.